The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see your smiling faces. It's always good every week to see somebody that I haven't seen in a while. So I'm so glad that you've joined us. We're in a series called Up Next Hope, and uh, we're going to land in Mark chapter 8. If you're looking for a spot in Scripture, that's where we'll be. We're navigating uh, the Gospel of Mark, talking about hope. And so we'll jump into that here momentarily. Do want to let you know, um, I know we keep referring to online. It's because we do have a live gathering happening online right now. And if you are at home online, um, at the end of the gathering, we're going to be taking communion together. So if you want to run to your fridge, grab some juice and and some bread or something like that, go ahead and do that because we're going to take communion together uh, in this setting. So And of course, if you're in here, we have the elements you should have received. If not, we'll make sure you get those um, before we take communion here in a bit. Um, Also wanted to let you know, you probably saw, maybe you might have noticed that the wall over here is a little different in the lobby. Um, It's kind of walled off, and then you saw the fence around the one wing. For some of you that aren't aware, it's because uh, that wing's going to come down here in a bit, and uh, there's a new auditorium that's going to go there down the road at some point. So um, just some some progress that we've been, yeah, wanting to make for a while. I know I say that kind of subtly, but it is great news. So um, we can can golf clap for that. So um, anyway, but... uh, just a heads up. We will give you more info. We'll be talking more about it, um, but that's kind of a little bit of what's happening here, um, hopefully soon. Um, last summer, uh, I became the proud owner of a boat and uh, never owned a boat before, but uh, proud owner of a boat. And uh, in fact, the, the couple that sold it to me is in here. So been enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun with the family. But uh, you're supposed to, before 60 days goes by from the day you purchase your boat, you're supposed to take a boater's course and get a certificate of completion so that you can legally navigate a boat um, on the water. And um, so I went ahead and, and did that um, eight days ago. And uh, so... I know, it's like, man, life goes on. Here's the deal. Somebody warned me that just so you know, it's gonna take a couple of hours to get through this test. So eight days ago was a Saturday. Um, I got home from a baseball game. My son's been playing baseball. I got home from a game and decided I gotta get this done because it's summer and I gotta get out on the boat and I wanna be legal. So um, I, I, I sat down with my laptop and started uh, looking up the boater's course and studying and stuff like that. And some people told me it should take a couple of hours and it took me about six. So um, I was beside myself, but let me explain a little bit of what happened. First of all, I went and saw that there was a a study guide that you should read before you take the test, which again, smart to do. So I read through the entire study guide and then I clicked on take the test and I started taking the test and and I did okay, you know, missed a few here and there and stuff, got to the end and found out that was the pretest. And so I was so annoyed. So I finally click on what looks like, you know, take the test or whatever. I click on that and it says, um, you, can take the, the, you can take the regular test or you can take this test, which is faster, but you gotta pay a little more money. And it was a difference of like $12 and I'm all about like, let's save some time. So I clicked on that one. I entered my credit card information, got to, into the test and what it turned out to be was an adventure story where I'm one of you know, four people that are navigating out on the water and we're in fog and there's an island and there's you know, all this stuff. And every, you know, along the way, um, I'm not kidding you, it became a choose your own adventure. Like, well, are you gonna go to the island? Or are you gonna navigate away from it? Are you gonna go into the fog? Or are you gonna stay away? You know, all this stuff. And, and at certain points along the way in this test, um, it would give you a, a, a quiz. So you would answer like eight or 10 questions. And if you got enough right, you would continue on with the story. That alone took me three hours, okay? <laughs> 
I get to the end of it, get my grade, did really well, and turns out that wasn't even the test. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So it's like 8 p.m., 8.30 p.m. I'm literally beside myself. I'm so frustrated. Like, this is nuts. So anyways, finally, I took the test. Um, I got a 98%, by the way. So hey, praise God for that. Because I don't think I got a 98% ever in high school or college. So, um, but uh, got through it. I'm legal. I can drive a boat now. So if you want to go boating with me, just let me know. Um, On your boat, not mine. Oh, but anyway. But one of the things, you're like, why are, you, are we going to look at the Bible ever today, or why are we here? Um, I want to talk about that. I think it's important because one of the things you learn, anybody out there own a boat, anybody own, you know, have the boaters course, have taken it, okay, none of you, okay, four of you, all right, so almost nobody, okay, good job. Um, one of the things I learned, and you kind of know this intuitively, but when you study, you get the, the, the details of it, is that when, when two vessels are, are navigating toward each other at an angle or straight on or whatever, there's rules that you're supposed to know about who is the, they call it this, the stand-on vessel or the give-way vessel, which makes sense, right? I mean, somebody needs to steer away so that, that you know, two boats, two vessels don't collide. It has to do with like the size of the boat or the ship, or is it a sailboat or is it a paddleboard or, you know, is it a, you know, watercraft? What is it? And so you go through, and again, you're learning about who has the right of way, who keeps going, and who needs to navigate to the right or to the left to avoid a collision. We all get the basic idea. Sometimes you have to yield, Right? Okay. Same is true for, you know, driving on the road. If you, you know, you come to a certain spot where, where roads are merging together, somebody's supposed to yield to somebody else. Anybody ever been to a four-way stop sign? Okay. All right. Who's supposed to yield? The person on the left. Yes. I know. It was a trick question. You didn't say right away. I was thinking right of way. I get it. I know. I understand. But, but, you know, if the person on your right got there at the same time you got there, they're the ones that are supposed to go. Now, there's a commercial that's a joke about this where they just keep going, no, no, you go, no, no, you go, no, no, you go, you go. And I'm not that person, okay? I'm like, no, I'm here first, okay? But now, here's the deal. I want to warn some of you because some of you have a terrible habit that needs to be broken when you're driving your vehicle. You come to a four-way stop and you stop 20 feet before the sign to beat the person on your left, okay? <laughs> Knock it off. That, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever been there? You come to this and somebody tries to stop way before so that somehow they get to go first, okay? Not cool. I also tend to think that sometimes in grocery stores, they need to have traffic cops because it gets like, who has the right of way and which cart and excuse me and I'm trying to get to this. And um, so all of that to say this, I wanna talk about today the importance of the give way vessel when it comes to our lives. And you're like, that's really cheesy. Okay, let's keep going. Mark chapter eight says this, starting in verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we don't have bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five pieces for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12 they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? And Jesus today, 
I think as many of us even hear this text right now, we kind of go, I, I don't know that I get it. And so I pray for you to help us understand the importance of this conversation, not only for the disciples back then, but for us today. That God, it might seem a little cheesy to talk about stand on and give way and boating. At the same time, that principle in our own lives matters more than we might ever imagine. So open our hearts and open our eyes, just like you did to the disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. This is kind of a weird conversation. And, and the, the, the problem is this. Basically, they think Jesus is concerned about bread. Now, I have no idea why they think he's so concerned about bread, but that's where their focus is, and they feel like they've somehow failed the Lord because they didn't bring enough bread while they're out on a boat. And, and Jesus is not concerned at all about the issue of bread except for what the bread means as he begins to teach them here in a few verses. But as it opens up, it says they forgot to bring bread except one loaf, and Jesus all of a sudden you could kind of see him almost look down and go, I see the loaf of bread. You know, they're probably getting hungry. And he jumps in in verse 15. And this is kind of the anchor to this whole text. He says, be aware or be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. That's the anchor to the whole conversation. It doesn't have anything to do with bread, except bread is kind of an idea or a picture of something that's supposed to help them understand something. And so all of a sudden they're talking with each other and like, well, it must be because we forgot to bring bread. That's not what Jesus is saying. In verse 15, Jesus is saying, be aware of the problem of false teaching. Now, let me talk for a moment about the Pharisees because the warning he gives is about them. Now he says, and of Herod, and the reason that's important just really briefly is this. In other gospels, Jesus will say, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Be aware of the yeast of the, the Pharisees and religious leaders. Here, Mark says, Jesus said, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. It's important to remember only for this reason. Mark's audience was Rome. And they would have understood Herod and Rome more, uh, more easily than they would have understood just Pharisees and religious leaders or Pharisees and Sadducees. So that's kind of the difference going on here. But when he says that, he's saying, be aware of false teaching. The Pharisees, religious leadership back in Jesus' day, were notorious for reading the Old Testament, looking at the law, getting into every nuance of it, and creating rules built around certain laws. Now, the reason that they felt like that was important was because, well, the, you know, it says don't work on the Sabbath, so we shouldn't work. But then, like, well, what, does, what defines work? Well, work would be this and 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 that. And yeah, that too. What about this? Yeah, let's include that. Yeah, not that. Yeah, that. So they came up with specific rules built around the Old Testament law that became over hundreds of years such a burden to the people that nobody was good enough. And in, in some ways, the Pharisees began to look down their nose at the common people because they created all these rules built around the Old Testament law that nobody could fully obey. And so there, were, there was a problem. The rules created clarity for how to obey, but made it more difficult to understand why to obey. And so their hearts become hard in the fog of strict obedience without heart. And they required this, the same strict obedience 
of their followers. That's why Jesus called them blind guides. That's why Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Because you, you try to win people over, and then in Jesus' mince words, he says, you, you, you teach them to become twice as son of hell as you. Okay, Jesus didn't beat around the bush. And he's saying you have created such a system that's so burdensome that you've missed entirely the heart of the matter. And that's the problem that Jesus is warning his disciples about. Be aware of this yeast. Because again, the idea of yeast, as you mix it into bread, it infects the whole you know, dough. And so that when it's baked, it rises like it's supposed to. Positive in bread, negative when it comes to the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. It was a, it was a terrible mess of, of their interpretation of Scripture. Now, I want you to hear that because that's what I want to kind of get into here in, in your world and my world. One of the greatest dangers of interpreting things that, that, that you and I observe or that you and I read or that you and I kind of look at even in Scripture is this. Somebody once said this, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And that's important. Because the implications of that idea is that we all process our thoughts differently. If I say this, I love going to the lake. Immediately, when I say lake, your mind goes to the lake that you're used to going to or the lake that you loved visiting as a kid or you know the cabin on Lake Michigan when you would fly back and go hang out with your family for a week or two during the summer or Twin Lakes, God forbid, Okay. Costco, Smoky Point, Twin Lakes. Okay, anyway, I remember going there as a kid and swimming, which is like, anyway, okay. But, but again, when I say lake, you picture something different than I might picture, Lake Goodwin or Lake Stevens or Lake Washington or a local lake that you're familiar with. When I say, um, if I bring up the idea of home, same thing happens. You picture your home. You picture walking in your door. You picture your living room or your kitchen or, or the setting from the outside. And maybe it's a condo or an apartment. Maybe it's a house. Maybe you've got acreage. Maybe everybody's right next to each other. When I say home, we each picture something unique. And on and on the examples go where I process and I picture differently than what you process, process and what you picture. Why is that important? Because our experiences... Our interactions, our education, the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives, they shape our outlook. So each of us uniquely has a certain life lens. And again, nothing wrong with this. This is, this is just the nature of how life goes on and how we're wired. Okay, but, but it also means that we have a unique lens from which we view scripture. The good side of it would be this. We each know Jesus somewhat uniquely. What is wonderful to one person about their faith and their view of Jesus doesn't, doesn't um, come across as somebody else as so amazing and wonderful, but there's a different facet that you might appreciate. Let me give you an example. A woman might have a deep distrust in men because you know, her father left as a kid or because she was married and her husband cheated and the betrayal was, was just such a sting that there's this deep distrust. You keep men at arm's length. But as you come to faith in Christ and as you take in scripture, a good example is this. You see the compassion of God. You see how Jesus navigate a relationship with others and your heart begins to open up towards who he is and you have a deep appreciation for how Jesus could be trusted in scripture. 
And that's kind of your thing you hold on to. That's a good example, okay? A not so, good, well, let me, real quick, let me go back. This is akin to the idea when Jesus says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. It's not that, that, that you know, you have a mountain of sin and I just have a molehill. The truth is we all have an issue with sin, a mountain of sin, a problem called sin. But when you and I see sin for what it is and the, how, how grotesque it can be and twist who we are and realize that God has forgiven us, there are some people that marvel and it creates such a, a, a gratitude in them that they operate with such a love and such a grace and such a compassion because they realize that they're just as you know, messy as anyone else in this world. And so Jesus even said, whoever's forgiven much loves much. And that's kind of that idea. A bad example or, or, or the bad part is this, that we can distort truth and misunderstand biblical application. R.C. Sproul, um, who I've read for years, but he has a book called Knowing God, or sorry, Knowing Scripture. And he says this, we must temper our zeal in criticizing scripture by allowing scripture to criticize us. We need to become aware that the perspective we bring to the word may well be a distortion of truth. And then listen to this. I am convinced, I'm reading, I am convinced that the problem of the influence of the 20th century, and of course now for us, 21st century, the 20th century secular mindset is a far more formidable obstacle to accurate biblical interpretation than is the problem of the conditioning of ancient culture. R.C. Sproul could see it. And many of us at different times in our lives can see it, that, that the type of influence that this world can have on us, that our own flesh can have on us, that outside forces can have on us, can bend our ability to take scripture and allow it to filter our lives. See, he said it one way, I'll say it another. It's great that you and I read scripture, but what about you and I allowing scripture to read us? And so there's this whole idea that you come with your view and I come with my view and you and I can read the same thing and, and, and come up with one might repent and go, I'm not living that out. And another might go, that's nice, that's cool. Should think about that someday. And we can read the very same thing. An example I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to repeat just, just for the sake of, of, again, kind of reiteration and remembrance is when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Anybody out there with one eye because you gouged it out because of sin? Anybody out there one hand because you cut one off because of sin? No. And again, if we understand scripture and interpret it correctly, reading the whole of the New Testament, not one verse and lopping things off because of it, what we understand is, as Jesus teaches it, it's an issue of the heart. Sin is an issue of our eyes as much as it's an issue of our hearts. Not that we don't deal with what we look at. But the truth is, it comes down to a core problem in our own heart that is sin. Jesus says, you and I should hate our mother and father. And if we don't, we're not worthy of the kingdom of God. If we take that at face value, what happens? Well, I gotta hate my family. That's not what Jesus meant. Take the hold of scripture and understand. Jesus is saying if you and I care more about people and other things in this world that keeps us 
from developing and maturing in our faith, that's a problem. And so our love for Christ and his ways ought to make everything else pale in comparison. It's not actually hating our own family. I believe the phrase is hyperbole. So let me go back to this idea of yeast and, and what Jesus says about being, you know, beware of, of the yeast. He's talking about the disciples not being duped by these religious elite that added all of these rules that were keeping people from feeding their actual souls. And again, the way they interpreted scripture became so twisted that they missed the grace of God in Christ. If you read Mark, and I'll just take Mark, and there's always Luke and John and Matthew, the four gospels, the stories of Jesus' life. But if you take Mark all by itself, the religious leaders were mad that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. I read that story. They got mad that he healed someone on the Sabbath. They got mad that the disciples were walking along and as the heads of grain were sticking out from the field, they began to run their hands along the grain and the kernels fell off in their hand and they had a snack to eat on their way. They got mad about that. They got upset when Jesus was forgiving people. They got angry when Jesus extended compassion to broken people. They, 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 they began puzzled and I've said many times they grew infuriated to the point where they wanted to murder him. These religious leaders were missing it by a million miles. When Jesus says, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, what is he talking about? False teaching. So then they go, they don't understand the false teaching side of it. They just go, oh no, we don't have enough bread. Like, you don't, I'm not talking about bread. So then what does he say? Do you guys not understand? Do you guys not see? When the whole crowds were gathered and there were thousands of people and we, have, we had a few loaves of bread, what happened? Well, we fed them all, okay? There was also another miracle with 4,000 people and there was a few bread and some fish and what happened? Well, everybody ate until they had plenty, okay? That's not logical. It doesn't work that, and don't get into the math of like, well, if you give 0.0001 ounces to every person, they could each have a little something. That's not the point. That's not how it worked. It says they ate until they all had their fill, That doesn't happen with a couple of loaves of bread and thousands of people. Why was Jesus saying this? Because his heart broke that those that should have identified him immediately never did. The religious leaders that studied the scriptures, the religious leaders that should have seen him coming, the religious leaders that would have known, especially according to Matthew's gospel, the prophetic text from the Old Testament that said, this is the Messiah. And they had studied it, but when he showed up, they saw nothing. So his heart was burdened for them, but then also for his disciples. Hey, the Messiah can multiply some food to feed a lot of people. That's me. That's what he was getting to in this story. But the warning is, when you and I look at scripture only through our lens, it's so easy for for us to miss what God is asking of our lives. When you and I read devotionally, and the only goal is to check the box of your daily reading plan and go on with your day, we're missing the point. When you and I gather on a Sunday, and and we we worship, and we listen to incredible music, and, and we might raise our hands and surrender, and we might sit there in awe at the words, but we leave and allow nothing to really change us, something is going wrong. There's there's something about what the Spirit of God wants to do in every single one of our hearts. 
that comes down to this basic principle in life. The simple fact is our perspectives and scriptural truth will collide. Our perspective, the way that you and I view life and what scripture says will collide. They will be heading towards one another. Danger is imminent. And if you and I have read scripture for any length of time and have never been transformed by it, that ought to be an idea. Something's not quite right here. We're always learning, which means we ought to be maturing, which we should also then be changing. And so when your life and your view and scripture collide, which vessel's the stand-on vessel and which vessel's the give-way vessel? I know it's cheesy, but my hope would be that you never forget that phrase because the truth at the core of the whole conversation is you and I should always be the give-way vessel. Like I said, the world we live in and the culture that you and I experience is this. Well, when the Bible says this, I don't think it probably really means that. And that book's kind of old anyways. And they probably just need to interpret it differently or use different words because it's not modern English. And so the problem is that that, that, that book's antiquated. And and I'm just going to kind of agree with what I think and what I agree with, kind of what this world says, because that kind of makes more sense to me than what that says. That's what our world does every day. It's amazing how how people will pick and choose what Jesus has to say and go, see, Jesus said we should love everybody. But did we also understand that, that scripture and Jesus has a lot to say about our sexual ethic? That there are principles and standards that we're called to live by, that some of it does not agree with the world we live in? What are you gonna do? Well, just misunderstand. Jesus said, love everybody. And love is love. And do you understand the danger of the ideas of our culture infiltrating who we're becoming? And I'm not saying we shouldn't offer grace. And I'm not saying people that disagree with, with where scripture's at, that we gotta be mean and angry and, 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 and not love them well but to excuse what goes on in our world as well, we just don't fully understand it as Christians. Becomes a gross misinterpretation of scripture. Let me just warn you, little by little, more and more, there's a greater polarization between where many of us are at as we read scripture and where our world is headed. And you may be able to say for a bunch of decades or in our our own history, in our world or our country, you could say, that it's a Christian nation. And you've heard random phrases like this, but less and less is that really the case, which then leads to more and more for you and I, and I believe this wholeheartedly, for you and I to stand on that Jesus is the way to heaven. There's plenty of people that will say that is not true. Jesus might be your way, but I have my way. Love it when Jesus says we should love our enemies. Don't like it so much when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We don't get to pick and choose. Somebody once said it this way, Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Man, I shouldn't have come today. 
I just should have picked some weeds and watched online. I can log off when I want to. I can go, to, I can go boating. Just going to be on a boat right now and not listen to this. I say it because in a series that we say, Up Next Hope, if you and I are only picking and choosing what we want to believe out of Scripture because it makes sense or because that's kind of the culture too and I get that and it gels and we're good, that's not real hope. We're lying to ourselves. And so when you look at the whole of, of these conversations, the key to success in Christ is submission. And again, that's not a popular thing to say, but my job isn't to be popular. Our job as we, as we want to love Christ with all of our hearts is not that, that we're popular. That, that we can love well and we can help people see the light of Christ. But there are moments where our lives intersects with truth in a way that requires us to be the give way vessel, to change where we're at, not where Jesus is. As you open the gospel of John, uh, it, it starts right in. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Who's John talking about? Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is what John says. Fast forward now to James chapter one. I mentioned before, James is the half brother of Jesus who when Jesus walked the earth, he thought along with his family, I think Jesus is crazy, but later realized like, wait a minute, he is the Messiah. Like how, how weird would that be? Like your half brother is the Messiah. <laughs> That's not going to happen to any of us. It's already done. So just in case your relative says it, it's not true. But, but John says Jesus is the word. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 1, verse 22, if you're taking notes, write that down. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You're the giveaway vessel. He's always the stand-on vessel. When our lives collide with scripture, it's not scripture that we have to change. It's not scripture that we have to ignore. I'm not gonna read that part. I'm not gonna put that on my Facebook page. I'm not gonna talk about that portion of it. Let's just talk about this portion because everybody likes that part. Do not merely listen to the word and in doing so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. James brings up the most absurd example. Like if you and I get ready, which many of us got ready this morning and we looked in a mirror, most of us, looks like most of us, a couple of you. No, I'm just kidding. It just, that was terrible. James says, it's like you and I looking at ourselves in a mirror and then we're walking the sidewalk and we see our reflection in a, in a mirror or in a window and we're like, who's that? That's you. James says, for you and I to hear the word but not do what it says is as foolish as looking at ourselves in a mirror and later on not even knowing our own reflection. That's crazy talk. And then he says, whoever looks intently Again, with, with, with a purpose, with a sense of mission about why you're reading scripture. 
looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Last chunk of verses. Luke chapter six, if you're taking notes right, Luke six, we're gonna start at verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus reminds us about what we're storing in our hearts. But he goes on to say this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. They're like a man who uh, is building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus says, don't just read what I have to say. Be the give way vessel. Shift from what you think now to how God wants to continue to mold you into walking out your faith. This is as important as it could ever be in a world that constantly is, is, is honestly like the shifting sands. Where are you at in that conversation? Would you say that you are the give way vessel or are you stand on? Well, that book's old. Well, I'm sure he didn't mean that. I'll take the things I like. Love, 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 love. God is slow to anger, abounding in love. Those are truths. But I only look at those. And I don't look at where Jesus says, hey, if you're a gossip, knock it off. Hey, if you're greedy, gotta learn to be generous. Hey, if you think life is all about you and your own happiness, you're gonna miss it. When we hear the truth, are we willing to be the give way vessel? It's a perfect moment to take communion. And so if you've got that little cup, and I know it's a little different, we, don't tip, we have bread and, and some juice today, it's obviously a little package thing. But if you need a, a communion um, little, little wafer and cup there, would you just raise your hand and, and Bonnie's one of our board members, would you just raise your hand and make sure, she'll make sure you get one. Anybody in the balcony real quick need one? Okay, we got a couple, yeah, there you go, thanks, John. Anybody else right here, uh, Bonnie up front, a couple up here, awesome. To me, this pairs really well with communion because when Jesus was, was with the disciples, in fact, he washed their feet and then talked about what I have done for you, you do to others. And then he talked about living out, doing what he asks us to do. The same conversation during the same moment when they broke bread together, it says that he grabbed the bread and he began to break off pieces of bread from a loaf and handed around to the disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it says after supper, he took the cup. And it says he, he, he passed the cup around and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. 
in my blood. Or this is, I'm sorry, this is, this is, this is um, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And to me, communion's a great day to be reminded of who Jesus is. Because we will oftentimes say, if you wanna invite Jesus into your life, it's the most important thing you could ever do, believing on what he did so that you could be forgiven of all your sin. But when we pray that prayer together, one of the things I will say is this, Jesus is not just savior, but Lord. So I'll say, Jesus, come into my heart, be my Lord and my savior. Savior, saving us from sin. Lord, meaning who we obey day after day after day. And so as we take communion, go ahead and peel off that first little layer there. And there's a simple little wafer. If you get the the foil one, you get to the juice, it's a little too far. So the top one, if you can get to that. And I'm gonna pray and I'm just gonna take that together. Father, thank you for what you've done. God, as we look at the elements of communion and the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the price that he would physically pay for ourselves, for our sin, for our healing. God, thank you for what you've done. It's a reminder of you being the Messiah, but also being the Lord of heaven and earth. And even as we take communion today, let it be a reminder of us living in submission to you as Lord. In Jesus' name, go ahead and take that wafer right now. And Father, we thank you. Go ahead and peel back that second layer real quick. And Father, we thank you that Jesus, you said to the disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance. Thank you for a new covenant. Thank you, God, that, that you are the epitome of the fulfillment of the Old Testament law that your life was actually a revelation of the Messiah that was coming. And so when you paid the price and your blood was shed, that made way for a new covenant. And I pray that we would always find ourselves grateful for that blood that was shed, that reminded us of your being the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecies, but also God, being the Lord of our lives. Thank you for shedding your blood in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.